Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. We're going to go ahead and get started then, uh, perhaps a couple minutes early, which is fine if we have a few people who come in late. Uh, we are on the same handout as last week, so if that was confusing to you, uh, we're on the same handout. We still have uh, the second beast to talk about, and I have a feeling that'll take us a little bit of time. And, and what we want to do as we finish up that picture, that second beast, is, is kind of paint a picture that's where we're getting ready to go in the text. We have four sessions left together. And uh, so here's kind of the, how those four sessions will play out. Uh, Easter's right in the middle of those or somewhere in those. I can't remember how that fits out. Um, but we will today uh, talk about the second beast, paint a picture of these characters and talk about how they're going to play out really through chapter 20 uh, when it comes to not only how they act in the world and how they interact with us, but also how ju- God is going to bring judgment against them. And that, that really does take us to chapter 20. In fact, as they are introduced, the dragon, the beast, the beast, the prostitute, we'll talk about her in just a moment because uh, we've not talked about that at all. But then we're going to flip this upside down and they're going to be dealt with. The prostitute, which is also going to be seen as Babylon, is going to be judged. Babylon's going to fall. Then beast two, beast one. And then finally in Revelation 20, the dragon is going to be dealt with. And we come, that's the end of the story. So we, we talked about in Revelation 12 and 13, the, this is the epic story that's behind all of the story we've seen thus far. So as we've walked through the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, uh, th- this opens up. Why is all of this going on? Because there is a war going on. And it was my seminary professor who uh, said this to us, and I don't know that he's alone in saying it, uh, but it is a, a declaration that sometimes is jarring uh, especially when we're, we're either coming out of a worship service or going into one this morning. But his statement is, worship is war in the book of Revelation. And if you think about it, he's right. Worship is an act of declaration. But through that act of declaration, you are, you are declaring that you're not with someone else, that you're not worshiping something else. And in Revelation, there's really only two that you can worship. There is the Lamb who was slain and God around the throne, don't get me wrong, uh, Revelation 4 and 5, or there is the dragon. And honestly, the, the beast and the beast and the prostitute all direct worship to one another, but ultimately it becomes the dragon. And, and so we have this worship is war dynamic that goes on here. Now, here's the thing I found this week that I found interesting. Um, there, there's this word that's, that's called rest. It's rest or ceasing. Uh, that's the, the word uh, that's connected as the root word. In Revelation 4 and 5, when they're worshiping God, uh, the word is this. They never stopped worship. They never ceased. They never rested uh, worshiping God, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They never rested. Then we come to those who worship the dragon. And that same word is going to be used here, but it's going to be this. They never ceased in their uh, torment because of their worship of the dragon. So those who worship God are given rest and, and those who worship the dragon are given torment. There is a, a tension there. There is war that is taking place. And so we, we've recognized that. Now, I'm going to pray and then what we'll do is we'll do a little bit of review of the first two characters up here and, uh, and then we'll go ahead and jump into that, that third or that second beast. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here again this morning. Uh, God, I know 
there are so many times where, like in Revelation, you need us to open our eyes. Uh, you need us to behold. And, and God, even today, I pray that you give us a, a fresh vision through John's visions of what is really going on around us, that we are at war, that uh, lives are at stake, that there is a spiritual battle going on all of the time. And Father, in the same way that Jesus um, encouraged his disciples on the evening of his, tem- on the evening of his betrayal, um, God, to stay alert, to, to pray so that they might not fall into temptation. I pray that uh, God will not have tired eyes as we live each and every day, but God, that we'll be able to stay alert. Um, God, we, we hear from Peter that our enemy is like a roaring lion. Uh, we learn in Revelation he is like a dragon. And so God, help us to be prepared, knowing that you have already conquered and that when we stand with you, we stand secure. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who were not here last week, um, just as a reminder, we introduced the dragon. And the dragon and all of these characters tend to want to mimic the, the lamb or God on the throne. So they want to claim thrones of their own, crowns of their own. They want to, to parody God. And this does become, not counting the prostitute, this does become a little bit of an unholy trinity. In fact, some have noticed the characteristics that, that make them similar to um, a lamb or make them similar to God on the throne and even the actions of the Holy Spirit. Um, that, that may be a little bit much there, but I think there's some dynamics there of deception as well. And we've talked about the tools that the dragon uses. Uh, Satan, throughout creation, uses deception. That's that serpent in the garden, which he is the ancient serpent, Revelation says. The dragon uses accusation. We've seen Satan uh, in the Old Testament with Job and the high priest Joshua uh, accusing people and bringing accusation. And yet, one of the things we learn is this is taken away at the cross. He no longer has that. And in fact, death being this third tool is also taken away from those who follow the Lamb. And so he has deception. And another thing he has that I would add here in its place is he has the ability uh, to intimidate. And, and those things become uh, implemented through these entities that are labeled as beasts or described as beasts in Revelation. And to oversimplify, and by oversimplify, sometimes that's helpful for us, uh, to oversimplify, I think these two beasts act in these two ways. The first beast becomes what we typically see as um, power in the world that intimidates God's people, that pushes God's people, that threatens to persecute God's people. And and so power can be government entities, political powers, but it can be other things as well. We can get smaller, um, we can kind of, you know, take that and narrow that down to go, um, are there times at work where someone would use a power and a power struggle or a throne and their own reign in order to intimidate someone who is trying to follow God? Yes. And in fact, can we go to a college or a university and go, can someone at times use their position of power and authority and go, can they use that to intimidate those who would follow God? Yes, they can. And we could go all the way down the line. So this beast, I would say for the John's audience, looks like Rome. Let's not miss that. For them, this looks like Rome. But, but what I want to say is, for us, we see Satan acting in similar ways even now. So even though the description of the beast may change a little bit here and there of how it interacts with us in the world, 
the, the reality is true is that at times those who claim God's power or throne and authority over others abuse that on behalf of the dragon. So that's where we dealt with last week. Beast number two is different. Um, and, I, and this still, in many ways, looks like elements of Rome. Um, but in this case, this beast, instead of pushing, is uh, deceiving or drawing people in. I'm, I'm going to suggest that this beast for John's audience looked a lot like the Roman em- emperor worship or imperial cult. And here's why I say that. Um, there's some dynamics going on here with this beast when it comes to deception. Um, so deceiving people to worship economic pressure, we'll get to these in just a moment, and even persecution to worship the first beast. This beast that tries to get people to worship the first beast is to me that connector that goes, okay, there's something going on here that really matters. Let me give you a little bit of the cultural dynamic and just remind us of Revelation 2 and 3. The churches that John's writing to are kind of on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. They're kind of on the edges. And one of the things they needed to do, or they felt the need to do, was to not only prove their loyalty to Rome, but continue to show their loyalty to Rome. That gains you privilege when you're on the outskirts. Uh, The more, uh, I'm just going to say in bed with, and that might not seem appropriate at church, but it's very appropriate to Revelation. That's why we're going to get to prostitute, okay? Um, The more in bed with they were with Rome, the more privileges they received as a city, city. You would receive financial privileges, you would receive freedoms, you would receive those types of things because of your loyalty to Rome. So they were some of the first cities to build these temples dedicated to emperors. Why? Because they wanted to prove that they were very patriotic to Rome. Okay. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like a, uh, a colony or something like that, making sure that when the king comes, that they're decorated in all of the flags of that nation that is over them. Even though when the king leaves, they take them all down and, and they put on a different front. This, this was very much a way for them to politically be in with the culture of Rome. Um, but we also discovered that, especially after the time of Revelation, we have uh, hard evidence that discusses the fact that at times there was pressure that said, so that you proved your loyalty as a citizen in that city to Rome, you had to worship the emperor at some of these temples. And so there was a temptation to compromise in a number of ways. Now, these weren't the only temples. There were temples to pagan gods. And if you remember what I said, uh, I mean, other pagan gods, what I said at other times if you were in a, a union, a trader's guild, at times you would have your own god or goddess and there would be pressure there to sacrifice. So this beast can look differently even in the Roman audience, but it is this pressure that is there for them to worship something other than the lamb or other than God. I, one of the pictures I think that this comes from is a story most of us are familiar with, I'm assuming, uh, you know, uh, sometimes we've heard. And it's a story that's very, very much at the forefront of the Jewish background. And it's a story of Daniel, uh, Daniel and the lion's den. We could go Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel and his friends in Babylon. So I want you to hear this and recognize Babylon is a big picture for the Jewish culture, the Jewish mindset at this time. Because for the Jews who went into Babylon, were exiled into Babylon, uh, they had a huge question in front of them. Would they worship the way the Babylonians worshipped? And some of that was through eating as well and how they used money. 
And so Daniel comes in the, the beginning of the book of Daniel. Daniel comes and he says, hey, I'm not going to eat like the rest of them. Test me in this for 10 days. We've already said that that has an echo in Revelation. And so he doesn't eat like the people of Babylon. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know this. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up that big image in the valley. And they're, they're told to come out and worship this image. And they won't worship it. And if they don't worship it, if they don't worship it, they're going to be killed. And I think that story, that story actually does stand at the, in kind of the forefront of this story of this temptation we have to worship. In fact, in Ephesus, um, we've uncovered a, a giant statue um, that's of, we think it's of Domitian. It might be of Titus. Uh, and there's pictures of like little kids. If you type in um, uh, Domitian statue in Ephesus, uh, you can look it up. But we have remnants of it. We have like the forearm and we have his head. And there's pictures on like Google of like little kids standing next to it. And you can see how giant this thing would have been. And, and so this, this statue that is there of one of the emperors, Domitian or Titus. Do, Domitian is the emperor now. Titus was the one who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. So, I mean, it's up close and personal. This is in the first, this is in the, the first city that, that was very much a heritage type of city. Don't lose your first love kind of city. And in that city was this giant statue of an emperor that they were being tempted and even pushed to go worship as an act of declaration to the first beast. Um, so as we come to the second beast, I want us to understand that this is very real for them, that it has real earthly, everyday con- connections and connotations. It may even be at some of these places that in the marketplace, and, and we don't know for sure, I don't want to oversell this, that, that you at this time even would have had to have made cer- certain sacrifices and made certain acts of worship in order to, to sell your goods in the market, in order to enter into the agora, the marketplace, the mall. And, and to make those types of sacrifices. And there does seem to be some allusion to that here in our text today, this mark that takes place, this mark of the beast that takes place. And so we want to dialogue about that just a bit. So let's look at the text, Revelation 13, 11 through 18. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Now, remember, the first one comes out of the sea. Uh, another beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. Notice again the parody there, the mimicking, like a lamb, but it spoke... Like a dragon. It's kind of the wolf in sheep's clothing, correct? I mean, it's deception. And yet it tries to put on a front that it's good. Now, John may just be, you know, in general, alluding to false teaching of all kinds. You start reading through the uh, New Testament letters and start looking for false teaching and how often that's the case behind the nature of the letters. And guess what? Almost all of them. That's the nature behind the letter. So this false teaching that happens in the second beast, this isn't the first time, it's not going to be the last time that Satan will try to use deception to to sway God's people. So it exercises all the authority of its first beast in its presence and it makes the the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast and the mortal wound that was healed. Um, For those of you who missed last week, we, we talked about this myth about Nero, that he was going to come back from the dead and like restore the glory days of Rome. Um, and it's, again, a parody of what Jesus was doing. And, and I think this is just a picture of this beast that says, look at this. It's going to be restored to its greatness and, and kind of put your faith and trust in it. And, and let me say, sometimes um, people can't have their faith and trust in things that aren't all that secure, including governments and money and other things that aren't as secure as what we think they are. So it deceives, it performs great signs. And, and similar to Moses and, and kind of the, uh, Janus and Jambres aren't named in the, in the Exodus story, 
but the Jewish people had these two names for them. And, and those are the, if you watch Prince of Egypt, the cartoon way back, uh, those are the two people that uh, perform miracles in that cartoon and that mimic Moses, but they're not quite the same as Moses's. Um, in, in the Exodus story, they're not named, but there, was all, there were all kinds of stories circulating about them. In fact, anytime a false teacher came back up, they would say, oh, that's Janus and Jambres. And they would have this like connection and they would identify. In fact, Paul does this in his letters to Timothy. And he talks about false teachers being like those two teachers in Egypt. And so there's these stock images in Israel's mind. Daniel and the tower, that, or the, the statue that they don't bow down to worship. And these false teachers that look like the real thing, but they're not the real thing. So they even make fire come down from earth in front of people. And by these signs, they are allowed to, to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded of the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who had not worshipped the image of the beast to be slain. I want to pause here for just a moment. First of all, don't miss the Daniel echo. If you don't worship, you're going to die. You're going to be slain. Don't miss the Daniel echo there. But there's also some interesting things that happened in pagan temples uh, in the ancient world. Um, one of them was ventriloquism, which I cannot do. But you know what I'm talking about. Um, there, were, there were interesting ways of worshiping to where they would interact with people and use, um, I'm just going to say, trick photography. Uh, you know, uh, I am the great and powerful Oz kinds of moments uh, to cause people like they're entering into the presence of a god. But it was really just a hoax. And, and that was actually very common in the ancient world when it came to ancient temples. Now, the reality is, is I have friends who serve in Taiwan. There's actually some truth to that as well, uh, even in modern day uh, idolatry. Now, not always true, but true. Let me also say this. Um, I, I personally believe it is possible that, um, that miracles can be mimicked by Satan and, and can, that Satan has miraculous powers as well. Again, my time in Haiti shows me that that is a possibility. Now, you know, I'm one of those who goes, I don't want to discount anything that is claimed by the Holy Spirit because I think the Holy Spirit has power to do things as well. Um, that's, by the way, is blasphemy the Holy Spirit when you say that that's, that's Satan when it's actually God because like they were doing that to Jesus. He has the spirit of Beelzebub and Jesus is going, be careful. Um, you, you want to be careful. So if, if, you know, if the Holy Spirit wants to do things, I think he can. But, but this hoax this hoax that is taking place is, again, a little bit of a, again, parody of the power that God has and has displayed in our world. So I want to finish the text. We'll come back and look at a few things. Verse 16. Also, this beast causes those. I don't know if this is an interesting or not or, or, or there or not, but instead of seven, this list is six. Uh, which tends to be the number of this beast, by the way, small and great, rich and poor, brave and slave and free, all of them are free and slave, all of them to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has this mark. Okay, what is this mark? Well, here's what it is, the name of the beast and the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. And we all go, uh-huh. Yes, it does. Right. Um, for let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. Um, it is number of a man or number of man. As we look at this, um, obviously, we have all kinds of hypotheses that have popped up over time. Right. We talked about last week, the, U, uh, uh, the UPC uh, label. Uh, we've talked about just tattoos in general uh, as being, you know, people who would say, yeah, that's the mark of the beast. We've talked about um, 
uh, GPS locating devices, right, embedded into your skin. Um, no, don't do that. That's the mark of the beast. And we've heard all kinds of theories. Um, the reality is this. Uh, we can make some educated guesses based upon wisdom of what John's talking about. And, and perhaps, you know, not know completely until we ask John. But let me give you two, uh, I think, uh, theories, options, I'm going to use the word options, that I think are the, the best options when it comes to wisdom, but also how revelation is interpreted in general. One of the things we need to understand is that in Hebrew, uh, there, there was not a numbering system. And so letters were numbers. That, that's important to us because when we think of numbers, we automatically jump to a different system which is really confusing for little kids, by the way. Um, I'm teaching my three-year-old how to count to five, and sometimes she throws letters in there, right? It's like one, two, three, four, five, D, A. You know, she starts in ABCs, and they cross over a little bit. Um, and, and so they had the same system. So for my, my daughter, uh, A would have been one, B would have been two, C would have been three, which is kind of helpful at some point. Now, the reality is when you see a word, then you also see a number. That makes sense as well, Correct is that when you, now when you're recognizing letters, there's a little bit of a crossover where you see one. And nothing magical, nothing mystical, nothing to decode about this. That's just the nature of their lettering system. Well, when it comes to this number 666, the question becomes this, well, what is that then? What would they have recognized? And that's where this heart of wisdom that John talks about comes into play. Um, two options have been proposed that I think have uh, ground to stand on based upon what John has done in the text. One of them that has been perhaps one of the most popular uh, is this name Nero. Now, I can get a little bit more technical than this, but we're not. Um, we could take this word uh, Nero in the Greek and put it into Hebrew, um, and Nero Caesar um, becomes this uh, number, 666. And, and so we've already talked about the Nero myth being that Nero, this myth that he was going to raise from the dead and that, that, that Rome was going to be restored and that people were going to be set free and there was going to be peace and prosperity and everything was going to be okay. In fact, one of Rome's claims to fame was peace of Rome, Pax Romana, that, that they would, that you would, if you followed Rome, you would find peace. You could call it the Roman dream. We have our American dream. They had their Roman dream. And, and the reality is, is that if this is the case, um, then even that mark of the bee or that, that uh, wound of the beast that is healed, that tends to play here. Now, why, why this being this? Because it's deception. That's how it's deception and political pressure. That's how this beast works. Would this number then apply to us still today? Only in the sense of the fact that as people buy into false sense of security and false senses of power, and, and so how does this mark take place? Uh, I want to suggest to you that there, there perhaps were moments where they would be marked, uh, you know, marked in the sense of, hey, now you're ready to buy, sell, and trade. But that, that John is recognizing that there's something spiritual that's deeper than that. That mark actually comes from, the idea of marking actually comes from uh, the Old Testament. Um, again, where you would be marked in your identity that you belong to God as God's people. You belong to God. Or the opposite is that you don't. We've already seen in chapter 7, those who belong to Jesus are sealed. That's the same idea. Instead of a mark, um, there is a, a seal, as a wax thing that has an identity. You know this from even the Middle Ages, that marks someone's identity. This is mine. Or I have testified that this is, this is sealed by me. And so this seal and this mark become these two contrasts between those who worship the beast and those who worship the lamb.
Um, this idea of Mark also can have the connotation of those who were uh, enslaved. If you were brought out of war into a foreign land and put under subjugation under a foreign master, you would be tattooed by them. Uh, you'd be marked by them to show that you were now their property. They owned you. And that may be some of what's going on here as well, is because of this war, you have been held captive. Uh, you have been marked that they now own you because you have worshipped this beast. Um, so that does become intriguing to me um, that this name is there. Now, there's another option, and this is also true, is actually just the word beast um, can be 666 as well. And I would go with either one of those options as being likely. Now, that's not all that like go around the water cooler tomorrow at work and be like, guess what 666 stands for? It stands for Trump's sons. You know, that, that, that's, not, that's not all that intriguing to like go out and just like, you know, talk about or put it. It's not going to sell a book. Let me put it that way. It's not going to like put you on a national TV station and, and cause people to put their hands on the TV and send you money. Because what you're saying is, is that like everything else in Revelation, this has a symbol that they would have recognized, but there's something spiritual behind it. And, and I think that we're safest at times when we let revelation be revelation and we don't try to make it be something that it's not. Now, there's one other little piece, and I don't want to go into too much detail. There actually is um, what's known as a textual variant, which means in a manuscript when something's a little bit different uh, than what, what the other manuscripts... And, and, and understand this, we have more manuscripts of, of our Bible than we have of like Homer's Iliad. So we have more evidence that the Bible is what the authors wrote than we do of any other ancient document. Um, but there is a textual manuscript um, that has this number, 616. It doesn't sound as like crazy intimidating, does it? Like, you know, like the lady at the gas station last week I told you about that gave me back my change, $6.16. She was like, oh! Now if she was $6.16, she wouldn't have thought about it whatsoever. Now in this textual variant, the interesting thing is, is there's actual variants of how you might spell both of these names. And both of those can be this 616 number as well. And I just find that intriguing. Like if they were understanding, oh, this is the name, you know, Nero the Beast, that they would also then change the number because they understand, hey, this number is different. Um, as far as, you know, I, ha- I can understand, this is my best understanding of 666. Um, and it's probably, again, not as like all of that um, mysterious uh, as what uh, we've tended to make when we try to make it something in the future, you know. And, and people have done different things. Ronald Reagan, because his name, middle name was an R as well. Uh, so we've tried to make it WWW. We've tried to make it all of those types of things. Yeah. My mind just keeps going back to, and this is so simplistic, and I understand that, but my mind just keeps going back to that big picture that you talk about with this of, these are all the details, and we're, and we're diving in and digging yeah. in. But our assurance is in the blood of Christ, yes. which is the mark on our life. And yes. that is our, I mean, that's how we, we've been bought with a price. This, yeah. You know, we've been bought with a price, and we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. And that's how we're marked. And that's. No, I think it's a valid point. And let me also say this what you're saying there, I want to take to the Exodus story again. Because it is, it's the story for Israel. The Exodus story is the Israel. So the blood that is over the doors marks them as set apart for God's people. And, and that, that stands in the background of this. You're either marked for God or you're not. 
And, and so that, that becomes kind of this line in the sand uh, that we see here. Now, here, what's going to happen after this point is kind of like the Exodus. In fact, as you read the seven bowls that are poured out, guess what they are mimicked up from? The plagues of Egypt, again. And so this is very much kind of that same story, not only the same story in Revelation repeating itself, the same story in the Bible repeating itself over and over, like Daniel in Babylon, like uh, Moses before Pharaoh, like Israel in Egypt. It's going to happen again and again and again. It just so happens that the imagery used from John um, looks a lot like their situation in Rome. That shouldn't surprise us. Um, and rather than us looking forward to find some um, you know, mysterious fulfillment in the future, um, recognizing that it was true then, but then also looking at our context today and going, how is it true today? Not saying it predicted today, other than the fact that it says it predicts it's always going to happen. But there's not a one-to-one. It's a over and over and over again. This has been true. So if you are in, um, and I, I'm reading, um, it's taken me a long time, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer's uh, a book about Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And it's talking about the church uh, underneath Nazi Germany. Why did they not stop it? Well, there were some who were, but there's some who weren't. And, and we could go to this, by the way, and go, did it look like the first beast, the power and persecution and fear and intimidation? Yeah, it did. Did it look like the second beast, deception and wooing and worshiping the government? Yeah, it did. Different than Rome, but it did. It looked the same. And we can look at that and go, oh, it looks like the same thing. And, and sometimes what we have is we have blinders onto our own culture, our own context to not see it today. And, and so what I want to say is not every context, every culture does it play out the same way. So not, you know, I'm not saying American government is exactly like Nazi Germany. That's not what I'm saying. But there may be parts that are. And, and maybe if it's not Jews, maybe as, Diedrich, uh, as uh, Eric Metaxas, who writes the Diedrich Bonhoeffer book, would say, if it's not Jews in concentration camps, is it babies who are uh, killed uh, because they're unwanted, because we don't want to be uncomfortable, because we, we want our lives to go how we want them to go? And he compares the numbers. And that's his, that's his, but he wants to open our eyes and say, are there some things that are happening even today that we excuse because we're being deceived? And so I think that's helpful for us to go, okay, how do we worship? And if worship is war, who are we aligning ourselves with? Now, the reality is, is in this text, we have two, two names on us. We either have the seal of Jesus or the mark of the beast, the mark that shows that we are identified with the dragon. And, um, and that maybe spiritually is something we could, should recognize every day, is that every day, we walk through life and we have either fruit of the Spirit or we have fruit of our own sinfulness. And, and we have to allow the Holy Spirit to help us to, to live that out and, and help us to uh, live according to how Christ calls us to live. So di- this dynamic, I think, is important. Now, here's what I want to do. Um, these characters have been introduced. They're going to be dealt with. That, that's a thankful thing. Like as these characters are introduced, one of the things John wants to say is, guess what? Rome's not going to be here forever. The imperial cult, it's not going to be here forever. That that was unthinkable to John's audience. I mean, that's, that's like in our modern day world saying there's going to be a day when, and you just name a superpower, when Great Britain, when United States, when Russia is not going to be there on the map anymore. Uh, there's going to be a day where this, the throne that is here is not going to be there, where these kinds of things are, that, that's unthinkable. This is the world they lived in every moment. How could it be? And it felt like that was completely in control and they were completely out of control. And so these characters are going to be dealt with by God. But I want to deal with this last character. Um, it's, it's called in Revelation, the prostitute or the harlot. Now, this is getting ahead in the next couple chapters. 
Uh, because we only have four weeks left, we're going to actually go through the next few chapters rather quickly. And here's why. Um, quicklier, <laughs> a little bit more quickly than we have been. Here's the reason why. You're going to see some of the same things repeated again. Okay, so chapter 14, guess what's going to happen? We'll get to it in just a moment. God's going to say, hey, guess what? I'm going to come and I'm going to judge. And the world's going to come to an end. And those who are with Jesus are going to be with Jesus. And those who are not, are not. And, and we're going to get to the seven bowls. And God's wrath, his fullness of his wrath is going to be poured out because of the idolatry. It's going to say, they did not repent. They did not repent. They did not repent. So plagues keep getting poured out. And then judgment comes. And then judgment's going to come. And all of these four entities are going to be destroyed in chapter 18 through 20. And then we're going to come to a final. And God's people are going to be with him. So we're going, to, we're going to see some of the same pictures. Exodus, plague, those types of things again. What, what I want to do in our remaining time today, the last 30 minutes, is say, here's some things to be watching for as you walk through there, uh, through this next part, part of the text, and as we walk through the next part of the text. Two things that have already been going on, but have not been as uh, spelled out as they will be in the next few chapters, is this contrast. Two cities are going to play out. Now, if worship is war... And you have a name, and it's either, and we could actually add this to the top. And so you have, you are sealed by the Spirit, or you're sealed by the mark of the Lamb, or you are marked by the beast, marked with the dragon. Um, these become the identifiers of these two groups. And so, so Revelation, by the way, John loves, the author loves contrasts. Uh, he loves contrasts of night and day of uh, truth and lies. Read the Gospel of John. Uh, read his letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And you'll see he, he loves those kinds of contrasts. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Nicodemus comes at night and he leaves at night. There's some intri- intriguing things that happen. When the woman around the well in, in John 4 comes, it's in the middle of the day. It's in the middle of the light. And what happens to her? She leaves and it's the middle of the day and she has come to light. She has come to the knowledge of who Jesus is and she tells other people about him. What happens when Nicodemus leaves? He's quiet and he's secretive. There's a contrast that's going on there. He loves these. New Jerusalem is the place where these people who have God's name, where they dwell. Now, to clarify, it's New Jerusalem. Because we've already seen that Old Jerusalem is also called Babylon and Egypt and Sodom. Okay, there's compromise that has happened there. They have persecuted God's people. So we have a place where we will or where we even have citizenship now. One of the intriguing things about this, and I'm adding imagery on top of imagery, is that when books are opened, these seem to be books that, that uh, echo citizenship role books of ancient cities and ancient nations. If your name is blotted out of a book, it's because you changed your citizenship to another place or uh, you were exiled, you were kicked out of that city. Um, so we have these, these books that are there. We have the book of the Lamb and we have books that are opened in Revelation chapter 20. And sometimes we see these and we go, okay, does God not remember like what we've done or the fact that we've accepted Jesus? No, that's not the point. The, the question is, where are you dwelling? Where are you a citizen? Where does your loyalty or allegiance lie? And that's the picture here. And so if you were to move out of or into Rome, you would become a, like Paul, a Roman citizen. That was a big deal to have citizenship. And, and so this idea of books even lines up with this idea of New Jerusalem. What city do you dwell in? Now, in contrast, Babylon, we've already talked about a little bit. This was that city that Israel was led out, out to in exile in 586 B.C. 
So this is 600 years before Jesus, 586 years before Jesus. Um, and, and this is, as they go to Babylon, the question would be, are they going to, even though they are still citizens of Jerusalem, are they going to forget God and worship in the ways of Babylon? It's a good question for us. Because what, what Revelation says is we live as exiles, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We live amongst Babylon and yet we're still called to be citizens of New Jerusalem. Will we compromise and where will our citizenship lie? So what does Daniel do as he opens up his window every day to pray? He looks toward the temple in Jerusalem, doesn't he? Why? Because he recognizes, even though I'm living in Babylon, I'm still a citizen of that city, that great city, and I still worship at that temple. So there's something about Daniel that causes those who are growing up in that faith and should cause us to go, I want to be like Daniel. And I think that's why he's kind of beckoned back, or even why the imagery of Babylon is beckoned back. Now, Babylon was a city of great wealth. It was a city of, all, I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it was a melting pot of religious and philosophical ideas, you know, all of those types of things. Um, even astronomy and some of those types of things in Israel's history become things that they, they look back to the time of Babylon and go, there's great learning then. Uh, as you read even extra-biblical Jewish writings, they talk about some of the amulets that Jews started wearing after their time in Babylon um, that were for magical purposes. Even though they were, uh, at times, people who you thought would be orthodox in their Jewish beliefs, um, they had picked up astrology and they'd picked up some of this, this spiritual uh, idolatry to where soldiers who were killed would be found with these amulets that would have magical incantations on them and in them um, to ward off spirits and those types of things. They, they, had, time, they had compromise here. I'm not really sure on that. That's a great question. I'll have to look at that, look at that up. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the mysticism of it were, had roots to this. So I'll look that up and let you know uh, what that looks like. Um, but yeah, but very much a lot of those types of things, the astrology, those types of things, had connections back into this Babylon time. Now, this city looked differently at different times. I mean, in the past, it had been Egypt, and we can also go, you know, okay, also pictures of Sodom and Gomorrah, those types of things. But cities in Revelation represent people who dwell in them. Just like church is not a building, it's a people. Cities are a people who have their citizenship aligned with the one who is the king or the one who is their ruler. And so even as you say cities, I mean, I recognize city for us has a topographical location. But even as we say, we are Web City on the football field, Megatron sign that we have, which says who we are, right? Um, if you're from Web City, um, we're saying it's us, not this place, because we dwell here. And so in, in this, this sense as well, it's the declaration of this is where we dwell, this is who we are. And so we have Babylon. We also have um, an image that is in contrast, and that is the bride and the harlot or the prostitute, depending on how that's translated. Obviously, that is the same thing. And obviously, there cannot be more of a contrast between these two characters. And automatically, from the Old Testament, you start to recognize there's parallel between Jerusalem bride and Babylon prostitute. They would have picked up on it, by the way. Because one of the accusations in the Old Testament is that God made a covenant, bride, made a promise to be faithful to his people as the groomsmen, and that they had made a promise to him to be faithful to him. And some of the stories are that he brought her out of slavery. He redeemed her, bought her out of slavery. Where is that? Egypt. Bought her out of slavery and gave her clothes and took care of her needs and fed her and led her through the wilderness of Egypt and gave her a home, gave her a place, gave her a land. 
she is his bride. Now, it's all imagery, so don't make it more than it needs to be. Um, But the imagery is of covenant and care of God towards his people. But the reality is, is not only in Babylon, but even right away, uh, in uh, the moment of the golden calf incident, as God's making the promise, find how ironic this is, on the wedding day, God's people are cheating on him with the golden calf. And so it's not Babylon in that moment, it's with the idols of Egypt. But this has been their story. And so they look like a bride, but they also look like a prostitute. They look like a harlot. Now, uh, perhaps you know the story of Hosea. If you don't, it's okay. Hosea is a prophet um, who's told by God, hey, I want you to go out and show my people what they look like. I mean, that's oversimplification, but here's what it is. Um, I want you to marry a prostitute, and she's not going to be faithful to you. Uh, that's one of those like assignments where you're like, oh, wait, God, I, I'm, I'm going to need some confirmation on this. Like, uh, let's go to Gideon's confirmation. Let's, let's have multiple layers of confirmation. You want me to do what? Um, yeah, I want you to marry a prostitute. Her name's Gomer. And I want you to, um, I want you to be faithful to her, even though she's not faithful to you. Because what prophets were is not only for, uh, tellers of uh, the present and the reality, and not only tellers of what would happen if they don't change it, but also they were pictures. Prophets were pictures of what God's people looked like. And so it, like, people are like, what in the world are you doing? Well, that is this picture. Like, Israel, why are you behaving this way? Why are you doing this? Now, this prostitute is going to, in Revelation, it, it's going to, I'm just going to, it's going to be pretty graphic. Like, the, the imagery for John's audience would be PG-13R in, when it comes to how graphic it is in its, in its verbiage. Now, they were surrounded by cultures that were very sexualized. So that's not like shocking to them, similar to perhaps us. So it wouldn't have been like a huge gap for them to go, okay, here's what's going. Um, the, this harlot is, is, and I know there's innuendo in this, um, she is riding the beast. And, and I only mean by that like a horse. Um, and so the, there's all our, all our own innuendos we have, right? Um, but, but she comes out in the culture um, that is the beast, this Roman culture, she comes out and, and she's a part of this. And the culture celebrates her, celebrates the, the compromise that God's people could have by being a part of this culture. And so she becomes very much part of Babylon, part of the, the dragon, beast one, beast two imagery. They all four are acting together to draw people, God's people into compromise, but also persecute God's people into compromise. This is how Satan works. Now, I have an easier time um, looking at the prostitute and the allure of moral compromise and, and saying she looks a lot like American culture. Because we're not really pushed to worship in a false way when it comes to like a civil religion of some kind. Some people are. That, that has been true. That was true in Roman cities when it came to the imperial cult. Um, and we're not being persecuted by the government to not worship. Now, that may, day may come. But we're not being persecuted in that way. But I think this is the third way that Satan um, draws people away from being loyal to to the Lamb, is through this cultural perversion as well as this cultural seduction. And we've mentioned that before. And so an interesting thing happens with this prostitute. Um, This prostitute um, ends up being Babylon, um, and Babylon ends up being this prostitute, which I don't want to confuse you. Because the city that lures God's people away is the prostitute that lures God's people away. They are one and the same. Cities are people and women are people in Revelation. Okay, So Mary isn't just Mary. She's God's people. She's God's covenant people. And, and whether she's Mary um, or Eve, 
She, she is. She is all of those. Um, in the same way, the prostitute and the bride. The bride obviously becomes a picture of the church, and the prostitute, the harlot, becomes a picture of those who, who have uh, compromised as well as the world. Now, there's this cry in Revelation chapter 18. And I want to turn over there if we could. Um, you're going you're gonna to see several things um, play out in these next few chapters next week, but this is a little bit of an introduction. Um, in Revelation chapter 18, Babylon is going to be pictured as falling, as being destroyed. Which you realize when you lived in Babylon, that's as crazy as New York City falling to an enemy. Um, and at the same time, Rome was that same way. The idea of Rome falling to an enemy was crazy. Um, but here, Babylon, this picture of Babylon falling, people start weeping and crying. And they, and they, they're merchants who sell and they're kings who have power and they weep and they cry out, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why? Well, because this is where their loyalty is. And, and I've said this once to y'all before. Um, on September 11th, there's a reason why our financial institution, our military institution, and even our political institution was targeted. There's a reason why those were targets, because those are places where our security is at least perceived to be held. Okay, now I recognize um, that's not true of everyone, but at least the perception of, at that time, those who would claim to be enemies or want to be enemies of our culture or of our context or of our people, of our nation, that they said, if we're going to attack or strike terror into the hearts of these people, here's the way we do that. We attack the security they have in their government, their political power, uh, in their military might, and in their financial institutions. Okay. So, so the woes that come up here are when those things fall, and we have, and I'm not saying we, people has no other security to be found. They don't have security in God to be found. And in the midst of these cries, um, there is this, this phrase in verse 4. And, and I want us to just recognize this phrase um, for what it is, but also recognize um, it has some connections with Babylon and Egypt. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you take part in her plagues. Come out of her, my people. Now, different scholars have different things to say about this. Here's the easiest one to say. Come out of her, my people, come out of Babylon, is you don't live there. Come out of her, come out of that city, don't live like them. Um, remove yourself from living like them. There's also a little bit of innuendo in that, and I'm, just, I'm not going to get overly graphic with that, but if she's not only Babylon, but she's also the prostitute, it's, it's the idea of quit cheating on me. I mean, that, that's a little bit of the innuendo that's there. Um, and it's very strong. It's God saying, this has to stop. We have to be done doing this. And my fear with, as we study Revelation, as we try to like make connections with like crazy things, helicopters and world events and newspaper articles, is that we will actually miss the heartbeat of what this is saying, is that over and over and over again in God's story, God's people have compromised against him, even though he has done everything for them. In the, in the Egyptian story, the Egypt story, the Exodus story, it is God has brought you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. He's bore you on the back of eagles. He has brought you through the sea, the great sea. He divided it for you. He brought you through the promised land. He fed you in the promised land. He delivered you from scorpions and snakes and from years of wandering in the wilderness. He brought you into the land flowing with milk and honey. He provided homes for you. He provided shelter for you. He provided comfort for you, and yet you, you abandoned him. You forgot him. Like There's this tragic scene in the story of Josiah, that eight-year-old king, um, and he's like, you know, descendant of David. And so Solomon's temple had been built, all of those things. He's this eight-year-old king. Now, he's only eight-year-old king because of his lineage. Obviously, the government's being run by his advisors until he's of age, and he does come of age. It's in that season of his coming of age that um, 
they explore the temple. And like they find the book of the law. Like they find the Bible. They discover it. They're like, we found, look what we found. Like apparently it's been lost. Like no one's been reading it. And so they find it and Josiah has it read to him. And he's like, why haven't we been doing this? And so he restores the temple order. They clean up the temple. They clean house. They restore temple uh, procedures and sacrificial systems and those types of things. But not very long after the temple was even established, they just completely forgot it. I mean, that's, a, that's like the story of the golden calf. It's like, God just brought you through out of Egypt and now you're worshiping a calf. How, how is that happening? And in Babylon, it, I realize you think God abandoned you. And yet, listen to your story. God has done all of these things for you. And, and, and even right at the time of Jesus' betrayal, they run away. We are a people who compromise over and over again. And if it's Judas taking the 30 pieces of silver rather than taking the treasure Jesus has to offer, we become like that. And Satan deceives us, deceives us and tempts us. And, and mimics things that only God can offer over and over again. Now, I want to say this in our culture. Um, there are some things that our culture promises to give us that only God can give us. And sometimes um, we miss it, and what we fail to realize is that's idolatry. Idolatry is not always bowing down to a little statue uh, on our mantle of our fireplace. Idolatry is attributing something that belongs to God to something that is in this created world. And so uh, idolatry is taking um, security and saying only God can provide security and putting in money, which I just had a lesson with my kids on money today. I had to actually sit down in the cafe, count out their quarters and be like, okay, God gives us this. If you didn't have the ability to do what you did, you couldn't have earned this yesterday or today for dad. And we had to have that lesson again because it's, kids, this really isn't worth a whole lot, to be honest. It won't get you anything in the long run. And, And sometimes we need to be reminded, like, Sometimes I need to be reminded of that. If my security is in something in this world, I'm actually no different than those who worship a golden calf and say, you brought us out, you saved us, you can rescue us. No, it can't. And for some of our culture, it's, it's sexuality, that, that somehow something will give us, uh, will fulfill in us something that only God can fill, which is that sense of identity, that sense of peace, maybe even that sense of intimacy. And, and, and God says, I want you to come to me first. And then he gives us good gifts. So it's not that he doesn't want us to have money or resources to do good things or have good things. It's not that he doesn't want us to have relationships with people. And, and even when he created a uh, husband and wife, he said, this is a good thing. So it's not that that's bad. It's just when we put it in place of God, we make it an idol rather than how God intended it as a good thing. And, and so we can do that over and over again. And even, I'm just, this is my phase of life, um, we as parents can do this with our kids. Uh, we can turn our own kids in, into, into an idol um, and, and think that our whole life is focused around this kid and then they feel the pressure of that or they sense the, the identity crisis in that and maybe they recognize the world's not all surrounded around them at some point um, like they felt like growing up or maybe they recognize I can never meet the expectations of my parents but we are oftentimes deceived. And, and when we do, um, we are in danger of kind of moving in this direction. Now, th- what I don't want you to hear me say is this, is that we who are sealed by the Holy Spirit um, go in and out of our salvation. Like, you know, like, oops, um, I, I lost my salvation. I need to come back. Now, what that does mean is that times we need to still repent. 
So as God's people, we continue to sin, but we also continue to repent. It is this uh, continual lifestyle that says, as I fall down, I will continue to look back up at the cross and continue to move forward toward the cross. And we grow in that way. We become stronger and better in that way. The Holy Spirit has more control in that way. But what I don't want you to hear is a lack of security that says, um, once you compromise once, you're, you're done. Uh, and even that idea of falling away from salvation, this is a tangent, um, it's not an accident. It's more of a divorce, right? People, people don't, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to, you know, if, if someone has divorce in the background, I, I, what I'm saying is this, it doesn't happen on accident. Like the things that lead up to it, things that lead up to it are things that have, have been stair-stepped along the way. And some of those things are things that we could have, should have avoided. Some of those things are not our fault, those types of things. I agree with that. But at some point, divorce is a decision that has, has been made. Now, when it comes to our role as bride, I do believe this. This is a little bit of my theology coming out. I believe the bride individuals, individuals who are part of the bride, can make a decision that says, I'm done. I'm walking away and change a change of loyalty. I think that's possible. In other words, I think it's possible to not fall away, but make a decision to betray and deny and walk away. And, and that to me is some of the danger that's here. Ephesus, you don't forsake your first love. Laodicea, you're lukewarm. Why is Revelation so concerned with the church? Because there's something that can be lost here. And, and not only lost in the sense of mission in the world, but also lost in the sense of your own, your own security if you're not careful, if you buy into some of these lies and walk in the other direction. Um, we're we're going to kind of draw a line in the sand, if you will, there. I want to ask, are there any questions about this? Because here's where I want, want you to go for next week. Um, only if you have time, obviously. Um, but in Revelation, um, next week, I want you to go ahead and read chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. So four chapters, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Uh, that'll lead you to the place where we will pick up next week. And that is with the, the ultimate, and I'm going to turn this board back around. Um, that, that is with the beginning of the, the judgment of these four characters. As you read through 14, I want you to recognize that's at the end of chapter 12 and 13. So it's wrapping up the introduction of these two beasts and the dragon, but God's going to judge. In fact, one of the images there is of a great harvest. And the harvest is going to come, and he's going to harvest these grapes. And the grape harvest is, <laughs> this is not a great picture, the, 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 the trampling of these grapes, which was very much an image that they would have been used to, is, is at this point an image of blood. And God's wrath is going to be poured out. And, and the, the blood is going to rise to the point of a horse's bridle. And it's for miles. Okay, in other words, God's going to, God's going to um, judge his enemy. And they will not win. There's this gathering of Armageddon, which is what we're going to talk about next week. There's this gathering of, of a war for Armageddon. I, I want you to start recognize there's never a war. Like, people gather as if they are going to go to war against God. But you don't go to war against God. Like, if you do, it's not really a fair fight, right? It's like my son arm wrestling with me last night. Dad, arm wrestle me. Okay, one, go. All right, done. All right, so go to bed. Um, it's just not a fair fight. And, and so there's imagery of this that's going to continue to pop up all the way till Revelation 19 and 20. And, and it's going to be pictures of battle war imagery that's what pictures of sim, you know, symbolic pictures that they would have been accustomed to. But recognize this is spiritual battle that we're talking about at this point. And, and so we're going to pick up on some of those pictures. But, but there's pictures from the book of Joel and some of those that they even have echoes of nations at war and those types of things. So chapters 14 uh, comes out of chapter 12 and 13. As you get into 15, um, you have the seven bowls. And here's why I think at the very, at least on the detail side of things, um, as you read it, 
uh, we'll just kind of come back and review a few things. You all have, at this point, hopefully been given some of the tools to pick up on and go, I see what's going on here. Egypt, plagues, not repent, compromise, same thing, rewound, expanded a little bit. Now it's not a quarter of people, a quarter of creation, not a third. It's all in the bowls. We're coming to the end. And so the bowls are actually a little bit shorter. They, they don't take as long. In fact, those little pauses that happen after the sixth seal and sixth trumpet, it's one sentence. It's just really quick. And, and it, then it gets done with that. So the seventh bowls, and we'll, we'll talk about the seventh bowl um, and the it is done phrase that is there. We'll talk a little bit about the, the song of Moses, which is in the midst of all of this. But as you get to 17... Um, we're going to come, it'll come back to the prostitute and that sets us up uh, next week to both do a little bit of review of those chapters you've read, but then jump ahead into chapter 18, 19. Then we have to spend one whole day on 20 because that's where we get into the thousand years and Satan will be released for a little bit of time. And you're like, what is going on there? Um, we need to talk about that. And it's going to take a whole day. And then the final week bringing us right out of Easter is Revelation 21, 22. And we need to talk about heaven. Like we need to end this with not talking about beasts and prostitutes and dragons. Uh, let's talk about um, the promise that is there for those who are faithful. Um, and that is the, the both and. So we have judgment pictured. Um, in other words, blood and horses bridles. Um, by the way, we could do this. Um, I could do this since I did this now. You're also going to see in the, as we come back in a couple weeks, two feasts. There's a wedding banquet. There's a wedding banquet, which we all have pictures of what that looks like in our context, and, and theirs wouldn't have been much diff- different other than that they lasted more than one day usually. Um, but then we also have um, a feast um, that is of birds coming after a war. And so there's a, a feast of um, judgment that happens on those who have opposed God. Now, again, symbol is there, uh, but the feast is a feast of judgment versus a feast of victory. So these two contrasts are going to play out through the rest of this book. And, and we need to make sure that we end on that revelation where seven different times it's going to say, and there's no more, and there's no more, and there's no more. And that's the beauty of Revelation 21-22 is seven different things are removed from new creation, new Jerusalem, and we don't have to deal with them anymore. So there's no longer any curse. There's no longer darkness. There's no longer tears, crying, mourning, pain, those types of things. And I'm looking forward to that day. That's going to be a great way to end out the class. So that's where we're going the next three weeks. Um, and as you come back from these four, these four chapters, let me know if you have questions. We'll give you big picture snapshots and handouts on all of those as well. All right, we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.